Blue takes yellow every time. Throw silver, throw gold, throw gold, throw gold. I am told I am told. Listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is local Vancouverite David Lester. Hi, David. Hi, Robin. <laughs> um, we're kind of sitting in my office because I just I never get down to the station. I'm really bad that way. I'm sorry, CITR. <laughs> um, David's been kind of involved in the Vancouver music scene for 30 years. Uh, yeah, I think I think we can say thirty years. Yeah, is that safe? <laughs> In various forms. I mean, I started out uh, doing a lot of uh, graphic design work for for the punk band DOA, so that goes back to probably uh, seventy seven. Oh, okay. Nineteen seventy seven. So that's uh, that's over thirty years. So yes, that's that's uh, a couple of days ago. <laughs> that's a while. It ago. seems like a couple of days ago, but yeah, uh, yeah you yeah. know, the decades just just that's tumble along. But it's changed a lot, hasn't it? The Vancouver. Well, the Vancouver punk scene, scene, yeah. Uh, Just a little. Well, it has because it's gone through so many, uh, morphed from so many music scenes that I can't even keep track of. And so you really, that's where you notice history develop is when you realize you can count half a dozen scenes and movements within that time frame. And when you talk about punk rock in Vancouver, there's there's a particular time frame that people refer to, say 1977 to 82, and then it became hardcore, and then from there into many other kinds of forms of pop and rock. And eventually the cobalt. And the cobalt. <laughs> so kind of, I guess, it, is, that, is, that, is that going full circle? I don't know, but it, uh, it's, uh, 
so 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 it's good that we have these kind of movements to measure time but otherwise as a human being it feels like time has gone by very quickly and uh, it does not feel like over 30 years that you've been involved making posters and and drawings and and creating music uh, it, it feels uh, it feels alive and fresh just like it was yesterday so visual art was your first kind of interest before you got started with Mechanoma? Yeah, I, I mean, I had a rock band in high school, and I, I started playing the guitar when I was probably about 11, and uh, so music was always a, a big part of it, uh, of my life, but I probably started drawing when I was, you know, only a few years old, so that predates the music, but they, they really have gone hand in hand, but at that point, I was probably more uh, involved in, in graphic design and, uh, and, uh, and, and drawings. So that, that was more my focus at that moment. Now your comic, or your book, graphic novel, I like to say comic. I don't know what You can say comic. Be. Everyone says graphic novel. Uh, Art it's Spiegelman basically a comic, but you know. <laughs> Art Spiegelman says they're comics still. Yeah. Well, so that, that's yeah. fine by me. That's um, okay. It came out this year, and so you say mm-hmm. you've been, you started, uh, actively involved in in the 70s when did the kind of comic bug jump in there and decide to start working on a book well i mean i always loved comic books and and i grew up uh you know interested in classics illustrated and and the work of jack kirby and i was never a superhero person but i did like um uh his drawing style and and uh i it took me 30, you know, it took me 30, 40 years to come to this p- moment where I thought uh, I could do a full book. And, uh, and why I didn't do it before was just, it just wasn't the moment, it wasn't the time to take a project like that on. And I, because I certainly did cartoons, but as far as a long project that, of a book of three, over 300 pages, that was... Uh, it just didn't. It did, I had to wait all this time, and sometimes li- the life is like that, or art is like that. You just, you will get around to it eventually. And so <laughs> that's, for me, what a, what happened with this book, and uh, and it started because I just, I was reading. I like to read history, and uh, I was reading about this uh, a book on uh, uh, the Weimar Republic and the rise of Hitler, and I came across this small election that I'd never heard of before. That uh, the last democratic election to take place in Germany before Hitler became chancellor and so it was that moment that I I, I thought this this could be a, a really good idea for a book because nobody's ever done it and uh, and I feel like those moments in history that are very small that people forget about they're they're sometimes they're the most pivotal of all because we we don't think about what happened prior to Hitler becoming Chancellor, because the Third Reich came, and the Second World War, and the Holocaust, and and that all seems far more important than the details of a, a minor state election. But when you read the history, it actually is quite pivotal to his rise. It's not the only reason he became Chancellor, but it is a very significant one that has been lost to history. And so that really interested me. And so why did I spend seven years working on this book? That That was because I felt the core of it was was fascinating to me and I did a lot of research to unearth what details I could find and it is relatively skimpy to, to find the details of this election. And to, to kind of give people a better idea because like 
first thoughts Primer era Germany mm-hmm. by Jason Lutz Berlin but this is very different like by election you don't mean like a general election you mean like it was a very specific almost like I guess what we would call a by-election now well it was a, it was uh, Germany was divided into states and uh, it was the smallest state in Germany and it uh, about 98,000 people mostly farmers and Lutherans and so this was a state election so Hitler himself wasn't running but his party the Nazi party was running in the state election and at this the, and the reason it's pivotal is because Hitler had peaked electorally nationally mm-hmm. he he lost his party lost a few million votes in the previous election and so it looked like his time in history was gone that he would be perhaps yesterday's man he would be uh somebody that had been uh, was being talked about uh, being replaced as party leader so that's how close he came to being uh, erased from history but along comes the Lippa state election which is the name of the state Lippa in Germany and this offered an opportunity for him to show that he wasn't yesterday's man and that he could uh, if he won this election he would he would seem to be you know a, a going concern again as a politician so it was everything uh, was riding on this election, even though the actual election itself was very minor. Yeah. The actual, you know, who won the state election there, it didn't really matter because it was such a small state. And, uh, uh, but it's how you spin doctor it and how you manipulate the, the election result is, is what, um, what Hitler was interested in and to show that he had some leverage in national politics by winning this local um, minor election. Yeah. I mean, and you can see kind of contemporaneous examples with, uh, like, provincial elections where you see, like, one little election could show that sh- that switch from the power base of the conservative to our, the new Democrats mm-hmm. or whatever. Like, trying to think of some examples. There was one in, like, Surrey that happened probably, like, 10, 15 years ago that mm-hmm. was, like, this, like, benchmark point. Mm-hmm. Not that the Liberal Party of BC is uh, analogous to the National Socialist Party of <laughs> well, <in> Germany. <laughs> no, but the, the, the same principles <laughs> exist there. Not that that uh, in terms of uh, uh, that. Well, in in this case of this election in Lippe in Germany, Hitler's party won with thirty nine percent of the vote. So sixty one percent of people did not vote for him, but he was able to claim a victory based on on winning the percentage of the vote uh, being the party that won the most votes within that framework of electoral uh, democracy. Yeah. So it shows the fallacy, uh, the, uh, the problems of electoral democracy when you can win with 39% of the vote, just as, uh, which, which is what Harper won with in the last election yeah. in Canada. Not and just electoral democracy, but the, the format of the vote, like the first past the post. Like if you had like a proportional representation system, this is the poli side nerd in me coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, you really can can have a lot of play, like especially with the system like STV, like they have in mm-hmm. New Zealand and Australia, mm-hmm. and they tried here but didn't mm-hmm. get passed. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's uh, well, and and even there are problems with that as well. But it, it's it. I wanted to show. I wanted to question the whole nature of electoral democracy as well, uh, and and how. You know, it can it, it can lead to fascism, and so in that Very in this easily. case is what uh, you know he would Hitler played the game. He played he was a politician just like we have politicians today, and he 
he played his audience and he told them what they wanted to hear. And so, so I think another reason I did the book was the relevancy of, of how he handled the campaign. It was very sophisticated and they used radio in a very sophisticated manner and all the major party leaders campaigned in the state election. Uh, they would go on to later be uh, on, on, on trial at Nuremberg for crimes against humanity. But they took this very seriously and Hitler uh, gave his royalties from Mein Kampf in order to finance the campaign. The Nazi party was in such a terrible state at that point because they'd fought so many federal elections yeah. over a course of eight years. They were in, 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 in trouble. And so that's how dire this was, and that's how important it was that he win this thing. And of course, you know, the, the Social Democrats, the Socialists, and other conservatives mocked his win at the time, but they could not beat the Nazis' propaganda machine. The Nazis proclaimed this a massive victory, a uh, Nazi wave rising again, uh, triumph. And uh, it, it worked by keep simply repeating the nature of... Uh, of uh, their propaganda, they were able to create the illusion of, of a success, despite other people noting that that was not much of a success. At that time, wasn't there like a really like very diasporic, I guess, or like really varied or huge amount of parties within the Reichstag itself? There were. I mean, there were there were a lot of parties, and probably, uh, but there were probably more uh, like f five main parties. We had uh, the Socialist Party, which was the Social Democratic Party, which still exists today. We had the Nazi Party, and we had the um, the, uh, the the German National People's Party, and we had the Communist Party. Uh, so those were four major ones. And we had the Catholic Party, and there were there were other uh, a lot of other parties that were smaller, which which maybe only had a, a couple of seats or whatever. But now, doing the story, um, what is it about modern? politics that make you reflect on this particular situation? Well, I guess that the same things are in play today in, in, in our political system as were in play there, which was which was spin doctoring of results, was media manipulation, uh, was style over substance, and was telling people what they wanted to hear rather than telling them the truth of what you would do when you achieve power. And it was downplaying your negative side, because uh, uh, everything that Hitler later did was on the public record. You know, he did want to kill Jews. Uh, he didn't say six million, but he said twelve to fifteen thousand in his book Mein Kampf. And uh, so the thing is, I feel like it also he, um, he his main concern was uh, uh, criticizing the Communist Party saying we should eliminate the Communist Party and we should also eliminate Jews. And it's the same relevancy of the rise of the right in Europe today, which is they're not targeting Jews, but they're targeting immigrants. Mm -hmm. And the third thing that Hitler heavily criticized was the, the very society, the very uh, idea of an electoral democracy. He wanted to destroy it. And he blamed the uh, problems of Germany on the federal government, which is very similar to what the Tea Party does in the U.S., where they blame the federal government, <coughs> big government, for all the problems that people have. Yet they are part of that system, the same as Hitler is part of the government. So it's it doesn't make any sense, but the same thing is in play. And I'm not saying the Tea Party is advocating the same things that Hitler was, but the point is 
it's the same idea uh, blaming the federal government for your problems and and we can see again where 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 did that lead so well it is I mean it's interesting because I mean this book came out earlier this year um, and some of the issues we're talking about especially with like the stemming social or stemming uh, fascism um, and that kind of organizedness and you see that now in the states especially um, with the kind of the Occupy reaction not the Occupy protest itself but the reaction to it where you see such heavy militancy um, and also I guess with the uh, what was it G20 in Toronto last year mm -hmm. was it G8 G20 I think yeah yeah um, and that was a hugely militarized response mm -hmm. too like you look at the uh, shots of Young and uh, King and mm -hmm. Well, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a, a, a huge overreaction to dissent, and it's a, a very fascistic kind of, has very fascistic qualities to it when you realize, wow, people cannot even protest without this heavy armed presence, and you realize what's behind uh, power and, and the people who are powerful and what they will do to keep their power. And uh, it's not unlike what was going on in Germany at that time where it was a heavily militarized society and every political party had a paramilitary uh, group behind them and they were all doing battle between each other so you would have these massive fights between the Communist Party uh, Red Front, I think it was called, and the, and the stormtroopers mm -hmm. uh, but they were not alone, the other parties did have paramilitaries as well so it was quite a, uh, a bizarre situation and, and of course, again, I feel it is relevant, the, my book is relevant, because now you see how attack ads are used in elections, particularly in the U.S., where I just was reading the other day that the, Rep the Republicans are using ads against Obama that, that are complete lies, like yeah. not even a pretense that they're honest or, or attacking Obama on, on any kind of real issues. This is total lies. And... and uh, if, if anything, probably things things were um, might have been actually even more uh, honest back in in the Weimar Republic when people were fighting elections. At least they were honest about their kind of <laughs> hatred for you know they they weren't sort of saying that this is the truth. They were saying we must destroy these other the, the other party, and it wasn't based around the niceties of making up lies about them in terms of uh, uh, policies or what they said. It was, a, it was almost more brutal than that. But we realize that, I, or I think that, we haven't really changed that much. And I always wonder whether people are any smarter now, despite education and the internet and access to information, than, than they were when them voters were in 1933. It's, um, it's interesting. Last year, um, or was the year before, I had a course in school, my last one of my big courses at UBC, I'm a history major, mm. and we did a seminar course on uh, history and media in Latin America. And one of the things we got to talking about was the um, the War of the Worlds, the Orson Welles thing in the 30s. And I'm like, well, could this happen again? Mm. And I'm like, well, no, people know better. But I'm saying, the, the more I see these kind of build up of just this false reality mm -hmm. of uh, like you're talking about like the Republican um, attack ads or the Rick Perry videos mm -hmm. um, 
it seems more than ever, the more media we have, the easier it is to get manipulated because we're so susceptible to immediate response, to immediate receiving it, so we have immediate reaction, and it just, you see in some spots, like in the Arab Spring, where that's worked quite well, mm -hmm. and it's going to be interesting how that works in the States in the future, because mm -hmm. I don't know how next year is going to go. Yeah. Well you, well, you have no filter now, because, uh, you know, the thing is, when Orson Welles did his radio broadcast, and I think it was 1938, it was radio, so it went out immediately, and so people had no, no nothing to check it with, and so they responded just from what they heard on the radio, uh, without consulting anything else or, or, or having anyone filter it in any way to give you analysis. And, it, and now we've come full circle where the web is like that, where things can just go out and there's, there's no way to check it, yeah. whether it's authentic or not. And so you can create the same sort of hysteria. And I, I feel that, that that occurs all the time, uh, but on a, on a more regular, low-level basis that people aren't really checking the facts. They're not, they're not consulting uh, uh, sources that are reputable because, because people have s seem to have bypassed it all. And now you just get it from, you know, from YouTube or whatever, from, you know. Yeah, from Fox News. Well, Fox News, <laughs> which has no credibility and, uh, and, and then nobody's checking the facts and, and uh, you know, news media has been depleted of, of resources at the newspapers across North America. And, and uh, so that whole area is, is really quite tragic. And, in, and in, in, in the Weimar Republic in 1920s Germany, you had a diversity of press there where, you, where you, you had the Nazi press and you knew what you were getting there. You had the left-wing press, which tended to be a bit more honest, and you had the Social Democrats, the Socialist Press, that tended to be a bit more honest in how they reported things, uh, and everything was slanted a bit, but there, there were quality people attempting to tell stories there uh, of what was going on at the time, because it was such, such a volatile time, but I, I feel that we're missing that right now. We're not, you know, there are sources, but you have to dig and find them that are credible. It, I was talking to one of my colleagues the other day about what we have for kind of modern journalism and how some, some of the folks represent themselves, like someone like Naomi Klein, who can write some really interesting stuff, but that at the same part she'll represent herself in a way um, with these population groups that she doesn't represent. I mean, she's not dealing with these same issues that someone with different backgrounds would be dealing with mm -hmm. and so you kind of see where you have these figureheads like Michael Moore who come out as these bombastic mm -hmm. um, representations it's yeah well and also we you know we he's like the go-to person because he's famous and you know quotable and stuff like that but and then you you're lessening the gene pool in terms of, of what kind of Diverse. dissenting op opinion and diversity you get because you go, oh, well, Naya McCline and Michael Moore will get those people or something, right? But there's a whole ton of other people that are not being represented and not uh, having an opportunity to engage uh, on public issues uh, because it's too easy to go to those people. And so they have, there's a heavy burden on those people, uh, unfairly so. And, of course, they just they do their job of they'll talk to people, but it's, it's, it creates, it skews the the, the level of opinion that you can get because you can easily dismiss people then. You can say, yeah. oh, that's Michael Moore, who he obviously is just going to say that, or that's Naomi Klein, she's going to say that, and 
and and you stop listening I think you know yeah. you either like them or you don't yeah and that's also the problem with kind of uh, media by personality exactly so this is this is what you're up against
So again, in, in my book, I, I, was, I try to touch on these issues without fully telling people what to think or telling everything about it. I wanted the book to be more of a uh, something that the reader, you know, they can go away and make their decisions about it. So. Yeah. Exploration. Well, yeah, you know, in a way, and and that's the nature of art, I think. Or when you try to combine art and politics, you, the, it's best not to tell people what to think. Uh, sometimes that's can make can be powerful art. It can be really powerful to be very straightforward and and say directly what you're trying to do with your art. But in other cases, it, it's more subversive and more powerful to let people think themselves, come to their own conclusions, one way or the other. And and that's a way of is far more engaging. And I think that's uh, what I liked about doing a book is that I realized this isn't this is a political book, but it's not a political book that's telling you what to think. And and hopefully you you get the nuance of what uh, of of it when you read it. And that's what what I was intending, you know, not to uh, to uh, spell it all out. I guess right. So yeah. so I feel like I touched on lots of different things without fully going into them. Because I, I, I thought that was like a dead end. Part of the book kind of looks at an exploration of art. Like it's one part politics, one part art. Um, being Vancouverite, we're not really known for our art scene. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is that a good... I don't if you know. say so, okay. Well, we're, we're not very, as a city, I don't mean as a, as a person myself, but as a yeah. city, it's not very supportive yeah. of its uh, localized art scene. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there's some amazing vibrancy here. Yeah. But, you know, we'd much rather have, uh, or City Hall would probably much rather have compost in every corner than necessarily... Uh, <laughs> well, we, we have, actually, British Columbia has a, has a poor record in supporting the arts it, it, when you look at it that way as yeah. well, even from, you know, an official standpoint let alone just individuals but uh, you know there if you look to other provinces in, in, in Canada they're they're actually superior to us and I can't really explain that other than uh, it's the mountains yeah I don't know it's, it's the mountains or something right but it's uh, it's a uh, it is a bit of a it's a sh it's a it's a scandal and a shame in that sense right yeah. in terms of how art is perceived and it's not, here and it's not just visual art like it's music theater mm -hmm. like you know, I'm sure you've had many stories of venues and whatnot, and even now, like, I don't even know what venues are left that mm -hmm. were around when I used to actually leave my house. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they come and go in, in such frequency that they, it's hard to sustain uh, a history there. And, yeah. and like we were talking earlier, yes, there are histories in Vancouver of movements of music here, but they tend to be relatively short-lived, and certainly venues have, have not persevered within that climate yeah uh, they haven't gone from one uh, scene to the next they've tended to fold and I think it's very hard to build a history when it, you're constantly killing it in that way you're constantly erasing it uh, and that's why documenting history becomes Im important for us to remember anything but e that is very hard to do it's very you know uh, uh, like you're doing with you know ink studs of you're documenting the work that people have have done in comics around mm -hmm. North America. I mean, it's very valuable uh, 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 life's work in that sense, right? Because uh, otherwise, who else is who else is doing it, or who is going to do it, or how do we remember the work of various people that have come and gone, right? 
and uh, and again that's the, the the thing that interests me about doing a, a book that is about history as well as contemporary times um, is that kind of documentation which I think is important yeah it's uh, the study of history isn't learning from our mistakes but more learning from who we are mm-hmm yeah so the whole learning from mistakes is a definitely misguided version. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, we never do. <laughs> we don't, yeah. So uh, all, we can, all we can do is point these things out, and all we can do is, uh, is have access to, to history. Yeah. Uh, but we're not very good at that on the West Coast, I feel. Like, we tear down buildings easily. We, we have erased our history as quickly as we create it. And, uh, and that's not a good thing. That's not what other, pe other people do. You know, that's not admirable. So, I always remember the uh, on um, Gore right by Sunrise Market, there's those little blue houses. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember them mm -hmm. right across yeah. from Rice World. And those have been around probably since the turn of the century. And some guy just wanted to put a parking lot in there. Mm. And now it stays, it lays empty with a fence around it. Mm. Yeah, it's wow. like these amazing little blue buildings that who knows how long they've been there. Yeah. Like a core piece of Japantown. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's it, right? So, but I digress. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> um, I think w what I was trying to go to is uh, part of the story is the exploration of Europe and the art there. Mm -hmm. um, did you have your own experience going to Europe and kind of exploring art, this like older traditions or other mm -hmm. traditions of art outside of Vancouver? Well, what, what I would I have traveled around. Europe a lot, and of course I go to the art galleries and I, I uh, uh, go to the churches to see art, and and uh, that certainly affected how I did the book and why I wanted to uh, do do the book in the way that I did it, of contrasting a modern story with a, a story from the past, and uh, the idea of searching for something and and trying to regain your inspiration for art by looking at other art, and which is, you know, so reflecting on it, just as one would reflect in, in my book on history and on art. So it, it all becomes kind of connected in that way, and, and a metaphor in itself, for itself. So, so for me, to see artwork up close is a very different experience than seeing it in a book, obviously. Because when you see a painting, you, you realize in a book, it's all smooth and the paper's smooth and it's glossy and it's it's very small and so all the all the imperfections have filled in and it looks very and when you see a work in person you realize that the painting is cracked and chipped and and the brush strokes are really rough and and you had no idea and so the experience is 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 unbelievably different so I wanted to have that experience as well in and, and put it in the book to a degree but that was where I was coming from in terms of how, for myself, imp how important art is and experiencing it in, in real life. Just like going to hear live music can be a very important thing to do at times too. And, and now, of course, like we were just talking about, there's less people go to live music, there's uh, less, less interest in that because you can experience it on the web and, and YouTube and such. And, and, but sometimes you have to go out and you have to see things yeah. right there and experience the loudness experience the dynamic the noise the ambient noise in a, in a room for yourself just as you want to look at that canvas or that drawing and see how small it is and how or how big it is and and those are qualities that that 
we're lucky to be able to do, uh, and they're, they're qualities that I think also apply to looking at history, is, is how, how can we understand history? It's not, it's not just some boring thing you read in a book. How do you make it come alive in some way? And so yeah, that's, again, part of what motivated me to, to, to do the book. It's, it's an interesting kind of contrast because, like, in some ways we're losing interest of going out to things. Um, but I remember seeing the Swans recently, the rickshaw, mm. and it was packed. Mm. The last time the Swans played here, there was a dozen people. Mm. How do you explain that? <laughs> you know, and it's, well, it's the this resurgence and people being able to find it online mm-hmm. and just mm-hmm. the music getting out there more. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there's 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 going to be a pro and con of how yeah. how what is the effect on 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 one on the other, and uh, so and also I always think there'll be some sort of a backlash to for us all sitting in front of our computers, which we all do, to going. I've had enough. You know, I'm yeah. going to to experience this in 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 in, in a different reality, yeah. and uh, so I have hope for that that it won't all just be completely sliding away from a live experience uh, and also going out and seeing art as well in galleries and such. I think it's also kind of promoted the importance of for performers of, of creating a live experience too. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. And the imperfections of a live per- experience as well. Mm-hmm. Because when you, you create a book, you know, you can... You can you can fix things. You can you know you have uh, years to fix things if uh, something's not right with a drawing. You can redo it or a painting. You can keep painting over it, but you know li- making live music. There's all sorts of problems that occur, and those are sometimes the most interesting mo- moments. Is when things the mic doesn't work or the, the the amp cuts out or something or the those those are the human experiences that that really make creating something come alive. And uh, y- you don't really have that necessarily with with a book, but you have that with drawing to a degree. I find drawing like that, and sometimes it's the imperfections that you go that that actually I like it. I, I'm going to keep it imperfect. Other things you might fix, but you you have that option. I think right. So when you create something with your hands, uh, and so when I made the book, I I uh, you know I used a lot of different messy techniques of acrylics and watercolor and and pencil and you know you're sort of playing with the paper and and seeing what kind of effects you can get out of it and some things work some things don't and but there is a a, a great fun in that as well because um, I, I just you know can't get into the doing it absolutely perfectly I, I think uh, I think things uh, um, you know we, you know like think uh, the great filmmaker Andre Tarkovsky said that uh, the world wouldn't uh, artists wouldn't be necessary if the world was perfect so I, to me that's an idea that <laughs> that artists offer something in this world that is imperfect yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean art for me it's like such a it's a tactile experience I guess like it's really important to like be able to like really get into it and experience it, like especially with like books and comics. Like, mm-hmm. I don't want to look at a screen. I want to experience that comic. I want to like sit there and have it be a process of who I am and what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, do you like looking at the raw drawings of a of a of a comic book that you've seen? Do you 
do you get a pleasure you know out I, of that? I like even more looking at the stages before that. Uh, the like the rough the sketches, sketches and yeah, you know. sketchbooks process. I love process. Yeah. That's a big thing. Is I love when like cartoonists that I really like have their pro- process drawings of like how they got from this point to that point. It's like mm-hmm. I, I've seen the original. You know, I've seen the pa- printed page. Mm-hmm. You know what that looks like. Yeah. I want to see like how it got there. Yeah, yeah. Well, sometimes uh, they might even be better drawings or more interesting work than the final thing that's all tightened up and nicely put together. That's what I, I think when I see sketches and because um, I, I love that too, uh, you know, because those are often the most un, un sort of blinkered, un, un sort of uh, censored moments that come across and usually the, the, they have a sense of gesture and a sense of experimentation that doesn't exist in the final work. There's a couple of great books that have kind of captured that, especially like the contrast of uh, reproduction techniques. Um, Jerry Moriarty's uh, Jack Survives book that came out a couple years ago. Um, when his book first came out from Raw Books, it was just straight black and white. Mm. Um, and so a lot of the little blue line celebrities were lost. The whatever was under the whiteout was lost. And then when the book came out, the new one, you could actually see all these things you changed on the page. And like what was originally there was a word balloon that said something. And it really like added to that page mm-hmm. and that subtlety and the humor he was pulling out and the same with um, uh, Justin Green's uh, Vicky Brown book that makes mm-hmm. reprinted yeah. um, like you probably saw the pages at the crazy show mm-hmm. yeah. and it was really amazing seeing like how they it's a lot of difference between that and the printed page because it's yeah. such low technology yeah yeah, that was what was interesting about that show was seeing some of the actual original art and seeing the size of it, and how, in some cases, you know, uh, crudely, the paper looked or how it was put together, and and uh, so I I love that and it's tactile and you just simply do not get that with the finished printed page, right? So, so that was a, and and I think when I was a, I remember when I was a kid, I you know visited a, a graphic designer as part of a class trip and. And, and seeing them, their rough sketches for advertisements and such, and, and it was just like, I thought, wow, that is fantastic. So you just sort of sit there scribbling some ideas out very roughly, and it looks so, to me it looked fantastic. It was just feeling like you got an inner idea of the inner workings of how art is produced by seeing sketches. And those graphic designers probably had all these amazing tools they had to use at that point that the letters and the yes. and the ruby lids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the dot screens and they oh, had to uh, cut and yeah, you know, and and a lot of people would hand letter things, you know, like big letters, and uh, so even that was fascinating, right? That was a real skill, which uh, which we people don't sort of need to have now in some respects. The Ames Guide. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have friends that still use it. Really? Okay. Okay. The little ruler with the different sizes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of work. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for taking the time to join me today, David. Uh, Reminder, folks, I'm going to chat with David Lester. His book is The Listener. And um, yeah. Are you doing any signings or performance coming up? Uh, I'll be doing, um, giving a reading from the book and uh, presenting uh, some of the images on a a slideshow as, as I read at uh, uh, an event at W2 uh, next month, uh, I think it's January 24th, I think it's a Tuesday night, 
also downtown at the Del at the Woodward Center. Okay. So that'll be part of an evening of people presenting their work, uh, part of a series, and so that uh, that will be the next next presentation. You so. still playing with Mechanormal? Oh yeah, Mechanormal's still going. We have a whole ton of new songs that we need to record. So it's a question of you know you you're balancing you know doing your doing artwork and design uh, work and and fitting time into to recording. So, you know, we're, we're, we're looking for, uh, we're planning on a release maybe next fall or the following spring, something like that. So we got to record songs and, and uh, but that's all, that's all happening, yeah. So we continue on. And again, making this book with, uh, for seven years, but during that time, I released Mechanormal albums and did other independent albums and, and uh, you know, designed posters and books and all that stuff and so it all kind of goes on as you as you live life you realize it's not just this one project even though it is all encompassing to make a book but in fact it, it it just life is is it's just all part of the same process right it's not just an isolated thing it's uh, the same brain that you use to make music or to design mm -hmm. you do graphic design it's all in the, part of the same process so so yeah. different parts of the brain. I guess so, yeah. But, you know, all filtered through your own kind of aesthetics yeah. sense, right? So and so that's why I think it, it's all kind of related, even though what I do in Mechanormal is completely different than the book I created. But they're they're connected. And, uh, well, and the interesting thing is also Mechanormal, it's a collaboration. Yes. And the book is a, is a solo output. Yeah, I know. That's because uh, I spent, you know, 30 years collaborating with Gene on making songs together, right, and uh, and making all these albums and t all these tours and all the times you spend in a car traveling thousands and thousands of miles with one person, it's quite a thing to then work on a project that is solely your own creation. But I must say that, you know, Gene gave valuable insight into the early drafts of it in, in terms of making it a better book. And, and the thing I realize is that when you show people your work in, in progress, the best thing you can get is, is criticism best you know yeah. the worst thing is for people to say hey you're, you're a genius or something right because it just doesn't help and you know you you learn so much from being told something's <laughs> terrible or whatever it's not, not working so um so that's that's what i learned from that process which i didn't think it would be quite like that but uh it was it was good so she was very very helpful so so she's working on her own book right now uh, uh novel and uh and uh, so yes, we will continue. So Mechanormal continues. Yes. You gonna try doing more comics? Uh, I've been toying with different ideas for a, for another book, but uh, right now this is still so fresh to me, and it just went into a second printing. So I'm very happy about that. And uh, and we'll 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 see. I'm gonna let it percolate a bit. See what I want to do next, right? And uh, if I do. Uh, uh, when I do another book, it will be probably less ambitious in terms of this one was uh, took so many years and and you never know whether you're you're going to be published or you know you there's no guarantee of it and or no guarantee that it's going to be any good and so I will I will probably choose wisely to choose a smaller topic or something <laughs> that would be a less smaller book so try some yeah. mini comics yeah yeah so anyway that's. <laughs> That's, uh, but yes, something will happen. Stuff will happen. We'll awesome. carry on. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me.